Well, good morning. How are you doing this morning? Good. I uh, wanted to greet you on behalf of the elders at Faith Bible Church down in Marietta. We are a a little bit bigger, but it's still a small church down South Riverside, and we've been around for about 20 years. And I can appreciate the setup, teardown nature of this church and all the effort that goes into what happens here on a Sunday morning. We've been doing it for since 2003. And uh, some of the stories that come out of being a set up and tear down church are just tremendous. Uh, I can remember the time we were currently meeting at Marietta Valley High School. We were meeting in their football stadium for over a year through summer and winter. I, I loved it when the drone would fly overhead with the neighbors trying to figure out what's going on and just hover above as we're preaching, getting sunburnt sitting out there. I can think of the times um, when we've had fire alarms go off in our service. I can think of the times where once I was preaching and a cat dragged a dead rabbit up behind me and just set it down behind me, um, like, look what I found. And so all sorts of fun things happen when you're set up in teardown. And uh, what a great privilege to be able to bring God's people together, because the church is never about a building, is it? It's just about being with God's people and being under His Word. And, uh, and so I'm just glad to be here with you. And like Morgan said, I get to serve as the college pastor and an elder there at Faith Bible Church. And I want you to know that I'm not a vocational pastor. I work a full-time job. I own a little tiny business that does um, some sales to orthopedic surgeons and have been doing that the last 20 plus years and serving the Lord uh, in his church and excited to be a part of what we call bivocational, which is working during the day and serving the Lord at night, if you, were, if you will, something to that effect. But uh, we do love you. We pray for you. Um, and, and a large part of that is because of, of the relationship that I've had with Morgan and with Bree for a long time. He said I was his high school pastor, and, uh, and I want you to know that Morgan was Bree's high school pastor, if you haven't heard that story, just to point that out. I don't know how that one worked out, but, but you can talk to him about that. Uh, but we've been involved in their lives for many years, uh, and uh, since the early days, I remember Morgan as a high school student, he had diamond-studded earrings, one in each ear. Yeah, if you look closely at him after the service, through the gray hairs, you'll notice that he, the holes are still open. That he could, if he wanted to, model those for you. I think he still has them in his sock drawer. Is that right? No, he threw them out um, at, when, he be, when he got saved. I think they were gone. But uh, anyway, we, we, um, we do love Morgan. We love Bree. I, I see some familiar faces in the room. The literals were with us for a long time. The Lees for a long time, et cetera. And so uh, I'm seeing Thomas and other people that I've gotten to know in the past. And just super thankful for what's happening here. And uh, just a little bit more about, my, about me. I, uh, we've been married. Tracy, my wife, is here. Morgan mentioned her. We've been married for 22 years. We were high school sweethearts. I was her volleyball coach, just to set the level straight. So um, we have some similarities. We have two daughters, Zoe and Haley. They're 17 and 15, junior and freshman at Marietta Valley High School. And so we are just working through that stage in our parenting and having just a good time with that. And, and as has been said, we're going to be talking about parenting this morning. Disclaimer from the beginning, um, we don't have it figured out. And we're in the middle and the thick of what is going on in that world and come with all humility and all trepidation to stand and bring the word of God and not my personal experience. And that's the, that's the goal and the authority of scripture and not the word of just a man. So uh, with that being said, let's dive in. Have you, have you heard of the Sistine Chapel? Not the Sixteen Chapel, the Sistine Chapel. 
It's located in Vatican City, Italy. Has anybody ever been to the Sistine Chapel and seen it? You have. Very cool. You can talk to them afterwards. I have not been there, but it's precisely located in the Apostolic Palace, which is the residence of the Pope. And uh, if you were to look at the painting on the ceiling, uh, it's one of the greatest demonstrations of Renaissance art. Uh, In 1508, it was largely to satisfy his own ego, Pope, where is it, Julius II commissioned, does anybody know who built it? Michelangelo, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, but the painter to paint the entire ceiling of this most revered place. Now, in the center of the chapel, there are um, nine scenes from the book of Genesis. You look up at this, okay? There's nine scenes that that detail creation, the fall, the flood, and so so forth. The centerpiece, which you'll probably recognize as I say it in your mind, be able to picture it, it's that iconic image of God surrounded by cherubs like little baby angels leaning down with his finger out like this and the hand of Adam coming up and their their fingers touching, depicting that the image of God is being passed into man. It's, it's an iconic image, pretty cool. Uh, Michelangelo was paid the equivalent of $600,000 to make this painting, and as a result of, of this work, he became the most prominent and well-known painter of his day. Now, if you were to travel to Rome, and you were to stand in the Sistine Chapel, and you were to look up some 40 feet Uh, you would notice, and and you're looking there at all 343 figures above you, you'll notice that carefully hidden up there are marks where scaffolding was hung. They they hung the scaffolding from the ceiling. Then when they were done, they filled it in with some kind of plaster and painted over it. But if you look carefully, you can still see that this was the work of many men over a long period of time as they worked overhead. Don't you hate working over your head ever, right? And they painted literally for five years above their heads. Now, this reminds me of a story of a question that was asked to three of the painters who were part of Michelangelo's crew. While walking home after a long day of work, the first was asked to describe his role in the project. His answer, I'm just here to make a living one day at a time, day laborer. The second asked the same question, said, I'm working here each day to provide for my family. The third asked the same question, answered, I'm helping Michelangelo paint the Sistine Chapel. Same work, different perspective. Let me compare this for a moment to how we view parenting. Some see parenting as nothing more than a job. One day they showed up, and now they're my responsibility and I've got them, and I do this because I have to, and you're looking forward to the day when they're out of the house. Some see the higher value in caring for the family. You circle the wagons, you create an atmosphere of love and, and a caring environment that can sometimes become an end in itself. Others recognize what parenting actually is. I am helping God paint his masterpiece. As we invest in the souls of these little people, one stroke at a time, one day at a time, we are working alongside God himself to instruct, to train, and to prepare this child for life in the world. You see, parents have been commissioned by God with this weighty task. 
It is a lifelong endeavor to steward those souls that are allotted to your care into a loving relationship with God. Now, there's nothing that we as parents want more than for our children, fill in the blank, to love Jesus Christ, right? Now, we put them in sports, hoping they'll become professional athletes, and we push them in their academics, hoping they'll get into a good college, and we manage and guard their friendships, we manage and guard their time on their devices, and we manage and, and, and um, keep track of a thousand other things in their lives. But in the end, our main objective and primary goal as parents is to see those little hearts submit to the Lord Jesus Christ to see them choose to follow God on their own and to live independently as sons and daughters of the king. Now, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you want the best for your kids? Of course you do. We all do. It's why we go to work every day to provide for our kids. It's why you make dinner every single night without thanks because you want to make sure their basic needs are met. It's what we're called to do as parents. In fact, you might say, I do everything I can for my kids. I try as hard as I can to give them and provide them the best, even more than I had when I was growing up. But can I tell you, as, hard, as good as your efforts are and as much as you're investing, just, just answer this in your own heart. Sometimes when somebody comes to you and questions your parenting, you ever get a little defensive? You ever kind of close off to that and you don't want to hear it? It's, it's difficult. If somebody came to you and said, I got something that to say, I see something in your life that I want to address. We're oftentimes very open and, and more humble in that situation. But question my parenting and you get a brick wall. Why is that? It's not because we think we have it all figured out. Why? It's because we believe that we're already doing the best we can for them. Because we would lay down our lives and we would shed the last drop of blood in our bodies for our kids. And so it's very hard for us to think when someone comes along to challenge that, that I need to listen because I'm already giving everything. Well, can we put a couple things on the table? No parent is perfect. No parenting technique is perfect. No one has a corner on parenting. We need the word of God to inform us. We need to be open to hearing from God himself on how we should parent and what the priorities are. And we need to be humble enough and open enough to grow and change and ultimately to hear what God says. And so this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself. I want to poke the bear a little bit. I'm coming early to tell you that. I want to get into your kitchen and just turn the heat up in your home. Fair warning. And it's been my prayer that as we evaluate our lives and evaluate our parenting, God would reveal areas of weakness and even areas of sin that he would do his work in our hearts and that we would be humble enough to receive that from the word of God and also from the other people in our lives. Now, if you're not there already, we're going to open to the word of God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And these verses are familiar to us, and as they were read this morning, I'm sure that you recognize them. And these verses are not just directed to parents. So if you're not a parent, and if you're in high school or junior high or college or somewhere in between all those things, 
this message is going to be directed to you as well. And if you're a person that's not a parent, but you disciple or you lead or you seek to influence anybody else, this is important for you. Could be a niece or nephew, could be a cousin, a grandchild, a younger sibling, could be a youth ministry staff person or children's worker, could be somebody you babysit. If you care about others and are involved and invested in people's lives, then this instruction will be simple and basic and hit at the very heart of our faith. This is a message for all of us. I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to start in verse 4, and we're just going to focus on these five verses. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's so much in this passage and in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, we have time for very little. So I've cut us down to just four principles or four keys of parenting that are laid out in these verses. Four keys to working with the next generation, to impacting and influencing others. Fair? All right, we'll move as quickly as we can through these. Let me just list them out for you and then we'll come back. Here's the four keys. You need to listen carefully. You need to view God rightly. You need to love God entirely. And you need to train them deliberately. Okay, that's where we're going this morning. Let's start with point number one. First key to parenting, listen carefully. You and I need to listen carefully. Now for just a, a moment, just to, to, we're dropping in the middle of a story. Let me give you the context, and this will help. The people of Israel have wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, and they're now standing on the edge of the promised land. And God has instructed Moses to once again give his law to his people. That's what Deuteronomy is. Deutero in Hebrew means second. Namas means law. Deutero, namas, you put it together. This is the second law, okay? Pretty simple. And in chapter five, he, he literally recites the 10 commandments, the ones from Mount Sinai, the ones that are carved and etched into stone, the 10 words. Um, they've been inscribed in stone so they would never be forgotten. They would never be changed. This is God's word to God's people. But here in verse 4, having done that, Moses says this. Look back at your Bibles at those first three words. Hear, O Israel. And I, I want to just, just get you into this. The entire nation is now gathered together. This is an audible message. This is not on a phone or on a TV. They are all gathered. Thousands and thousands of people are gathered looking, and this message is being delivered to the nation. From the youngest to the oldest, from the highest to the lowest, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, all have gathered together to hear a word from God. And Moses steps forward to give a singular charge. There's so many things we need to talk about as we get on the promised land, but he chooses to talk about one thing. One thing that will rise above everybody else. And so the first thing he says is, I need your attention. I need you with me. I'm going to make a, de a declaration, an all-inclusive call to every man and woman that calls themselves a child of God. 
It's as if he's saying, I've just got one thing to tell you. The end of my life, one great thing, one truth, one singular reality by which you must live. And here we are as the people of God, gathered together, and there is still just one priority in the life of every child of God, and we'll hear about it today. But just to wrap this and illustrate this, in 2018, you maybe heard this story, every resident on the island of Oahu, that's Hawaii, where Honolulu is and the North Shore and all that, Waikiki, received the following text message at 810. You know how text messages just show up on your phone sometimes? How do I block this? You can't right? This is the, the government has their ways. In, anyway, this is what it said. 8, 10 in the morning, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. Terrified, the people started panicking. They have history with being bombed, right? Um, and this was North Korea, and all this stuff was going on with Trump and other things happening, and they had already calculated it would take a nuclear bomb 30 minutes to get from, from Korea over to Hawaii, the easiest place to strike in the United States from somebody coming across the Pacific Rim. People were getting into bathtubs. They were driving towards the tunnels that are on the, on the mountain, um, on the island, to get someplace that was covered from the, the radioactive fallout. They were going crazy. They were calling and saying goodbye to loved ones. This was happening. We, we have, I know Morgan has family and Bria has family out there. We have a lot of friends on the island who, after this, called and said they were crying on the phone with their spouse, with your kids in the bathtub. He's a, just stepped out to go to the store, and this is happening right now. 38, 38 minutes later, it was announced the text was an error and a mistake. Anyway, I, I, here's, here's where I'm drawing at this, because it doesn't really matter except for this. In that moment, their eyes were focused and their attention was fixed on one singular reality. Yes? Pretty true. All I'm saying here is that in this text... God is asking you to set aside the distractions of your heart, the things in the week that maybe are out there, the weariness, um, all the different things that are just piling through your mind right now about what you got to do after church, get ready for work tomorrow, all the different things going on, all the trials. He wants your full attention. He wants your undivided attention. And so Moses steps up and he says, you need to listen carefully. This message is important. Hear, O Israel. Do I have your attention? Does God have your attention? Are you focused in? Stay with me. Okay, point number two. Second priority here. We must view God rightly. Not only listen carefully, but view God rightly. Look back again at verse four. Moses adds there, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. In Hebrew, does anybody know what this is called? That's, that's right. This is called the Shema. Shema in Hebrew just means to hear or to listen. But it became the name of this most important Jewish prayer, almost a ritualistic prayer that the Jews would pray three times a day as part of their religious structure. And why is this prayer so important? Because in one brief sentence and in an economy of words, there is a declaration of the nature and the character of God. His name is Yahweh. 
It's written there. You, can, you just see the word Lord, but the name of God is Yahweh. That's why the Lord is capitalized in your Bibles. Jehovah is his name. He is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He is the covenant-keeping God of the nation of Israel. He is not wood or stone or some man-made idol like the other nations. He is the sovereign commander of the armies of heaven who sits on his throne and all of creation obeys his voice. He is the exalted king who reigns over the affairs of men. He is the absolute and infinite one who alone is to be worshipped. And this is the declaration made by every Jew throughout Jewish history. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. He is the true God. And I want you to look back at your Bibles at verse 4. Look down. I love that little three-letter word, our. He is our God. The Lord Yahweh is our God. Have you heard better news than this? Can you think of anything better than to know that our God is a relational, personal God and that he, not that he belongs to us, but that he is on our side, that he can be known. The one who stands in our corner and has fought our battles is not far off. He is not disinterested in what's happening in your home and in your life. He is our God. And this is where parenting starts. Stay with me on this. It begins with a high view of God. It begins with a right view of God. A recognition that we are under his mighty hand and that his ways are right. That his instructions and his commands are to be followed. If you were to read through Deuteronomy 5 and 6, and I did this a few days ago, and just write out all the attributes and the character of God, because this is who he is, and he summarizes it in this brief phase, phrase, but the people know who this God is. Just in those two chapters alone, he's described as powerful and glorious, a God who is to be feared. He is a promise-keeping God who is rich in loving kindness. He is a deliverer and a rescuer and a savior of his people. And he is worthy of worship as he sits over all as the righteous judge. And so Moses, standing before the people of Israel and resetting the priority and the direction of their lives, the direction and the priority of their families, the direction and the priority of their nation, and he begins by establishing the high view of who God is. It always starts there. Because, parent, you will never train them to be like God or to submit to God's rule or to follow God's ways unless you know who God is. So Moses gives this to us. You have to listen carefully. You have to see God rightly. And thirdly, you have to love God entirely. You must love God entirely. And this brings us into the crux of this passage and into the heart of the very Bible itself. 66 books, 40 different authors, spread over thousands of years, written in different languages. This is the central theme of the entire Bible. This is where it all comes together. Let me read it for you. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. We know because of what Jesus said that this is the great and foremost commandment of the law, the center of all religion. It is repeated in all three synoptic gospels by Jesus himself. And even in the book of John, 
At the end in chapter 21, after Peter had denied Christ three times, you remember the scene on the seashore where Jesus, seeking to restore Peter, asked him three questions, asked him one question three times. What was the question? Do you love me? This is always the heart. It is always the center for every life in this room. Because you can go through the motions. You can have all the external behaviors down. You can show up to church every Sunday. You can tell your kids that they need to love God and obey him. You can tell your parents that I I will obey you and I do love God, but it's all secondary to what's happening in your heart. We are a world of external people that show up with a smile and nice clothes and try to hide what's really going on in our hearts sometimes. To the men in this room, do you love Jesus most? More than your job, more than your hobby, more than your wife? Do you love him more than your secret sin and the hidden lusts and secret desires of your heart? Do you love him more than the images and fantasies that you entertain? To the women in this room, do you love Jesus most? more than your husband, more than your picture of a perfect life, more than your children? Is he your all, your sufficiency? Do you find your contentment and your identity in Christ alone above your identity as a mom and a wife? And so you see, we quickly get to the root of the issue, don't we? You can't parent your children or lead that small group or disciple that young person if Christ is not all to you. Because all you're teaching, watch this, is hypocrisy. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the precepts of men. You can hide who you really are from your boss. You can hide it from the other moms at co-op. You can even hide it from your leaders at church. But you cannot hide it from God. He knows your heart. And listen, you cannot hide it from your children because they know the real you. There's much conversation about why do so many people fall away and leave the church at age 18 when they get out of the house? Deconstructing of their faith. So much conversation about what is wrong in our churches and what do we need to do to fix the problem? Can I help you here? Can I help you? There is no greater reason for teenagers to leave the church and abandon their faith than the hypocrisy that they see in their own homes. You can tell them to follow God's ways. You can preach obedience till you're blue in the face, but they are watching you. They know the real you. They're sitting in the backseat listening to you as you fight on the way to church and then step out like everything is perfect. They can hear you in the next room arguing at night. They know what you watch on TV. 
They know if your Bible sits on the shelf only to come out for its weekly trip to church. And there's nothing that confuses a child more than the hypocrisy of their parents. You love Christ, you come to church and are committed, but your kids know what the real priorities are. If every time there's a face-off between Sunday sports and church, the sports wins. If every time there's a face-off between youth group and some other priority, well, we'll just go next week, that thing wins. And I got it. Just, just as a side note, my daughter's at a volleyball tournament right now. Okay, so I'm, 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 with, I'm in this with you. But if all the time you're prioritizing other things and always cheating the church and time with God's people, when they turn 18 and they walk out your door, what have you trained them to do? What have you showed them? The real priority is everything else in life. It's so dangerous. There's an author, Kristen Welch, who says this, parents say much more to their kids by their lives than by their words. I think that's pretty good. And so I'm coming to you today and saying we must take steps now for the sake of our children, for the sake of our own souls. It's front and center, and this is the crux of everything. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. It flows from the heart, and it encapsulates the whole being. It holds nothing back. It gives everything to him. Notice in verse 5, if you would, that word all. Three times it's repeated as if to emphasize, to prioritize. Love here is raised, as it were, to the third power, showing its supremacy, its completeness. There are no competitors, no rivals, no seconds. It is total it is complete. There is nothing else. Think back on your wedding day. When you stared into the eyes of that person, put a ring on their finger, and swore to have eyes only for them. There was eyes that, that was then, this is now, nothing has changed, right? Only eyes for her or for him. So it is with God. We are to have eyes for him alone. That's our testimony as Christians and is the command that we all must follow. Friend, there can be no rogue desires, no secret sins, no other loves. All must be rooted out and thoroughly abandoned. There is only God. He alone is worthy. And he demands our complete attention and our total worship. And if you want to know why, why should I love him? Why should I worship him? Why should I let go of those friendships that are bad and stop looking at those images? Why should I put my life firmly rooted with the people of God and his church doing his work? Why should I do these things? All you need to do is refer back to point number two. It's because of who God is. The God of Israel, who by his own power and because of his loving kindness, rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. He released them from bondage, drew near to them, and gave them life. And friends, so it is with us. 
God saved us by his own power and because of his loving kindness. He has rescued us from the slavery of sin and its eternally destructive power. He has drawn near to us in the person of Christ, laying down his own life, bearing our sin and rising up with Christ. We have newness of life with him so that we could be his both now and forever. Hear, O Christian of Summit Bible Church, and listen to the declaration. This is the one true God, and he is to be obeyed and worshiped and loved above all others. Is there a question in your family about what you love most, Dad? Mom? If I asked your kids, what would they say? If I asked your spouse, what would they say? Hardest place to live and the truest indicator of where your love truly lies is in your home. There's three simple tests to determine where your affections are. Your calendar, your bank account, and your mouth. You heard this before? If Christ is first, then he will be on our lips. We talk about that which we love, right? If Christ is first, it will be reflected in how we spend our time, what we give our time to, where we're committed to. If Christ is first, it will be reflected in how we spend our money, what we give financially to, how we save and budget and prepare for the future, etc., but friend, love for Christ cannot be manufactured. It cannot be contrived. Either you love Christ and your family's oriented around him, or it's not. And I'm sorry to be so simplistic, but this is the middle of parenting. This is the issue. This is parenting and all of life wrapped up in one simple idea. I don't have some self-help tips for you today. I don't have 10 steps to being a better parent. I know you have five to 10 parenting books sitting on your shelf right now. You can go there for that. This is about the one thing, the main thing, the singular priority, because the direction that your family moves will be dictated not by those things, but by your love or lack of love for God himself. It's that simple. And so if you've drifted from nearness to Christ and have other competing loves, then there is one final instruction from Jesus. It's in Revelation 2 in the letter to the church. Do you remember this? Those people had left their first love. Again, Jesus is always looking for what do you love? The Gospels with Peter. And here at the end in Revelation, do you love me? Do you have that fresh love? And if you find this morning, go into your heart before the Lord, and you have drifted or wandered or Christ is not central in your life, Jesus has very simple instruction. I won't make you turn there. You can read later, Revelation 2, but he gives three instructions. Remember from where you have fallen, repent, and return. Today, Christian, in this moment, confess that your first love is not there and you have drifted and returned to nearness in Christ. so interesting because uh, as a graduate of UCLA, I have daughters who are UCLA fans. Surprise, right? 
I mean, certainly it could be because UCLA has a robust athletics program and more national championships than its rival down the street. It could be because of the superior academic um, uh, stance of the campus versus its competitor. Clearly, it's one of the top countries and schools in the nation. It could be the campus, you know, located in beautiful Westwood versus the um, mean streets of South Central. I mean, there's so many things we could look at. Not to mention the NCAA sanctions um, against USC, stripping them of a national championship for football because they're cheaters! But if you put those things aside, why do you think my girls like UCLA? Because their father does. Because it's what I've modeled to them. So it is with our families. What we love is, is evident, and it will be seen in our homes. If we love entertainment, the TV's always on, right? If we love sports, then Sunday mornings become optional during football season. And so I say it again, and I'm just beating this drum, and I got it. It's repetitive. It's intentional. The key to parenting is your own heart before the Lord, period. If you're going through the motions and just mailing it in, that's going to have an impact on your family, if you're apathetic, inconsistent, and lazy or even cold to Christ, then make no mistake, your family will follow suit. And again, if your heart isn't there, then go back this morning and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross because we all drift and we need the grace of God. And this is not the do better sermon. This is the one that says, let's recalibrate our priority, confess our sin, and hold on to the grace of God and fall in love with Jesus Christ again. Nothing more important. This will dictate the heartbeat and direction of your family. So, listen carefully. View God rightly. Love God entirely. And finally, point number four, train them deliberately. Train them deliberately. We're not going to have a lot of time here, but look back at verse 6. Here's the actual instruction. These words, all of chapter 5 and 6, all the commands of God, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. I just want to stop there for just a minute. Forever and always, the commands are to be placed near the heart. Isn't that an expression we still use? Something is very near and dear to us. I emailed a lady in our church yesterday who lost her husband during COVID. She was near to my heart yesterday. And I sent her a message just saying, I'm praying for you, trying to comfort her. That's, we're like that, near and dear to our This is what's here. It shall be on your heart. It shall be near and dear to you. Look at verse 7. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And here we see the mandate to parents. The instruction given to mom and dad, the order of operations is laid out, the burden of responsibility falls. Notice he doesn't direct this command to the government or to the culture or to the television set. It's not given to the youth leaders or to, to coaches or to teachers. The duty and responsibility rests on the shoulders of the parents. It's a weighty task. And if I took it one step far, farther, I'd say it's dictated by the father. We'll come back to that but it's a lifelong assignment given to every parent, ready or not. But if you look through your Old Testament, and then you look through your New Testament, you don't find a whole lot on parenting, do you? 
There's not a whole lot of specifics of what to do, what not to do. It's strangely quiet. There are some Proverbs that speak to the truisms of parents, right, in raising young people. There's Ephesians 6, and there's Colossians 3, and there's some other um, smattering of passages like this one, Deuteronomy 6, but the instructions are limited. It's like getting a piece of furniture from Ikea and discovering the manual wasn't included. And that, by the way, is impossible to put together even with the instruction manual, so I'm not sure how you're going to do it without that. There are 83 parts. I have no idea what's going on. Parenting is similar. We're not given the step-by-step. We're given general principles to employ. And three such principles are found in these verses. Your training should be intentional, it should be natural, and it should be continual. Look back at the command in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. This is an intentional training. And we'll add daughters, by the way, too. This is intentional training. The word for diligent teaching, do you see that there in verse 7? In the Hebrew, this word was used to sharpen a blade. And I left without bringing my machete, which I actually was going to bring with me. Because the lady that lived in our house, um, we just bought a house recently, and I found in the garage literally a machete. And the thing is incredibly sharp. And she was 66, 67, living by herself. And I'm like, why did she need a machete? But then I thought, well, she's a single lady living by herself. Of course she needs a machete, right? And I I love this thing because um, it has a clean edge on it. There's no dirt or rust. Um, And I used to just just hit palm branches in my yard. I climb up on a ladder on that palm tree, about to fall over and go to the hospital. Why don't I just have somebody come do it for me or get those clips that you go up. No, I'm just going to do it myself. And I take this thing and I just whack. And if you hit just perfectly, the entire palm front just goes and just falls off. It just slices like butter through this thing. I love it. That's the word used here, the sharpening of a blade. That's diligent teaching. As a parent, God has called you, watch this, to be the tool in the life of that child. Not a weapon, okay? I want to be careful, but a tool in the life of that child consistently working to prepare them for the future, applying the right amount of pressure like you would if you're sharpening that blade. That's what the picture is here. Apply the right amount of pressure at the perfect angle, moving at the appropriate speed. One stroke at a time, we prepare our children for the actual task of their lives. And that is this, independently living for Christ. This is all just the pregame show. The real question is what happens when they're 18 or beyond and move out of the house? Can they stand? That's what we're working towards. And so day by day, we are slowly sharpening the blade, diligently teaching them, intentionally planning. It requires forethought. It requires a plan. Listen, let me ask a question. Do you have health care? I bet you do. Do you have a plan for retirement? Some investments maybe? Retirement strategy? Do you have insurance? Have you ever gone on a family vacation? At least one of those is a yes. Each one of those things requires forethought and intentionality. You have to have a plan, an intentional plan, and so it is with training your kids. And the mantle of responsibility falls, like I said a minute ago, solely, or not solely, squarely on the shoulders of the father. It is to the men that God has placed the mantle of leadership for the home. Dad, it is your task. And this is something I read at every wedding that I do. As I challenge the young men, this is a quote. It's my own quote, so I'm not really sure that that makes any sense, but this is what it is. This is your task. 
It is your duty. And if your house is out of order, if the finances are messed up, if the kids are rebellious or there's spiritual apathy in your family, then do not look to another because you are the root cause. You are the high watermark, and as you go, so goes your family. That's a heavy word, but dads, it falls right onto our shoulders. And yet you might be sitting here today, parents, thinking, I, don't, I haven't been doing this. I, I, there's no intentional relationship with my kids. I, I don't even know how to get started. Is it too late for me? What should I do? Listen, it's okay. It's all right, okay? Here's a couple suggestions. And I, I, I'm not going to get practical, but spend, times, spend as many times as a week as you can uh, doing family worship. The days are fleeting, are they not? Already with a 17 and 15-year-old, they're gone multiple nights out of the week for us. The high school years, it's hard to find nights at home together, so seize them up, parents of younger children. Don't overthink it. Just get your Bibles out and work through stories. Have them draw pictures. Do some fun stuff, but show them that this is a priority, that the Bible and prayer are priorities. Make it a priority to get to church. Make it a priority to serve in the church. Get them to youth group. They're good ways to intentionally teach your kids and direct your life. Deuteronomy 6 tells us that we teach our children intentionally, but secondly, we teach them naturally. Naturally. Look at verse 7. You shall talk of them, the commands of God, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. It's not just in the formal context of the church. It's not just with the youth leaders. It's not just when other people are around. Um, it's not when you sit down for family worship that some light opens from heaven and God just, oh, speaks through you. It's in the blank spaces. It's in all of life. He says when you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up, because you love God with all your heart and these words are bound and close to your heart, it will naturally come out of you every day and in every way. I remember with Zoe, my oldest, when she was just in a car seat facing forward, and I had a, a two-door Toyota truck, and she sat next to me. I had to turn the airbag off, so it, and she was right here next to me, and we drive around in West Marietta, and I go, Zoe, look at those clouds. Who made the clouds? God did. Zoe, look at that hill that's green over there. Who made that? God did. Look at the sun coming through in the blue sky. Who made that? God did. And, and, and it's not just that I'm teaching her in the moment. My heart, as I'm seeing this, is welling up in worship to the creator God. This is the, this is the pathway. It's simple as driving to Lowe's to worship him. As they get older, you look for conversations about friendship, about the opposite sex, about their desires and how they're changing, all that's going on in their lives, um, sports and schooling and sex and every facet of life. It's intentional and it's natural in the flow and course of your life. Look for those opportunities and seize them. It's intentional, it's natural. Third, it's continual. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. <laughs> now, the Jews took this literally, and they would write the Shema, and they would put it into a little wooden box, and then they would bind it to their hand, tie it on, or stick it directly onto their forehead. And the, and the bigger your frontal was, the, the more spiritual you were. It's a very wooden interpretation, a literal interpretation. You might think that's kind of silly, but we do that right now. How many of you have taken verse 9 literally? You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You've got that framed picture that looks really nice. 
that says Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the same thing. It's the same declaration. At our house, we have an old poem, um, at least two stanzas of it, written by a missionary named C.T. Studd. It hangs above our couch. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And why do we do these things? Because it's a statement. It's a statement to our own hearts. It's a statement to our kids. It's a statement to everybody that walks through the door that I belong to Jesus Christ. And that process is intentional, and it's natural, and it is continually happening. In all of life, we are keenly aware and focused that this is a process. You don't cut a tree down in one, one stroke, right? Unless you've got a sharp machete. It takes a lot of time to do that, and this continual effort of training our kids. Yesterday, I had to call 911. This is 911, what's your emergency? about four o'clock yesterday afternoon. Yeah, there's a young woman my wife and I have been ministering to who's in the middle of an altercation with her boyfriend, driving, he's following her, he won't leave her alone. I'm sending her to the police station. Can you have a uniformed officer standing out in front? I drove over and talked with her and the police officer and then brought her back to our house. Her parents aren't believers. She lives with another family in the church, really difficult time. We sat in our kitchen, it just kind of happened. Everybody came into the kitchen and our girls were in there just helping make dinner. Now, the girl who's involved in this is a strong girl who had held it all together, didn't shed one tear in front of the police. But when she sat down in our kitchen and looked me in the eyes, she just came unzipped and undone. All the adrenaline had flowed out and she just broke down sobbing uncontrollably uncontrollably about her bad choices, her ruined relationship, and how her life and her sin, her deception, manipulation, had all led to this event. Now, my wife and I are usually very careful with what happens in front of our girls, because we do a ton of ministry in this fashion, and we're usually in a front room behind a closed door. Too much for them to bear. They don't need to carry those weights. We don't want to gossip about other people. We want to be very cautious and careful with that. But not last night. I made the, the deliberate decision to leave our girls in that room as part of the continual, natural, in, intentional training process for them. They're old enough to recognize that there are mistakes made and there's sin involved here. And we hugged that young lady and we developed a plan for her and sent her on her way. And then we sat down as a family and talked about it. What led her to this point? It was a disregard for the basic biblical counsel that we had given her over months. Lying, manipulation, sexual sin. And we opened our Bible to 1 Corinthians 10, 11. I don't expect you to know it, but it talks about all the disobedience in the Old Testament of, of what had happened. Paul is chronicling all these things that have happened that led to the judgment of God. And then he says this in 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Oh, it's an example we can learn from. Be careful what you do, my daughters. Be careful who you give your heart to, how you live. And just because they're church kids who have a proclivity to self-righteousness, I read the next verse, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, I'm not preaching to my daughters, okay? I'm not preaching to you. 
And we taught them and sat there and explained, we're all sinners. We can all fall. We're all um, sons and daughters of Adam, and we need the grace of God. That's intentional training in the flow of life given in a continual way. That's our job as parents. Now, it's not always so pronounced as that, I got it. Just sit and open your Bible and say, let's just talk about the story of David and Goliath. Let's just talk about the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Let's just see what does this mean to love one another and to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. I need to wrap because I've gone long. I want to say this publicly right now. I'm an elder at Faith Bible Church. I've been a Christian a long time. I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. This is one big experiment. There's never a moment you'll catch us talking about the success of our kids. You know why? Because success in parenting is not based on how they turn out. It's based on what you do. It's based on your faithfulness and my faithfulness to the commands of God. He takes care of the results. I don't know how my kids are going to end up. I just know that God has called me to love him with all my heart and to try to bring that through my life into theirs day by day, in the fallenness and brokenness of my life, for asking for forgiveness when I sin against them, showing them that, what that looks like when we fight and have to sit down and say, this is what happened, and explaining all that. It's part of the process. So if you don't know what to do, it's okay. That's why the church is here, to help come alongside you as parents and work through this process together. And so I just want to encourage you to take some steps today to sit down with your spouse, develop a plan. Your kids are not going to be here forever. I'm staring at one year and my daughter is done. There is an end coming soon, not soon enough for some of you, too quick for others. But one author calls this the age of opportunity. And now is the time to get it. Whether you've got one year left or 18, 17 years left, now is the time to go. Okay, I need to wrap. Listen carefully, view God rightly, love God entirely, and train them deliberately. Hey, I'll say it one more time. This church is here to help. If you need someone to talk to, help develop a plan, what's the first step in this? Grab Morgan, grab one of the elders, and engage on this topic, okay? All right, look forward to seeing those of you who are coming to the Q&A after we finish. But thanks for giving me the opportunity to preach this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in your word. Thank you for the clarity that you've laid out. Thank you that the priorities are simple. And Lord, we confess even now that we are broken and fallen people and we don't love you the way we should. Lord, I confess that I don't love you with all of my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. And so, Father, I just ask that you would forgive me, forgive us as we recognize that we fall so short, but we're thankful for your grace and the covering power of the blood of Christ. And so we're made clean and we're washed because of him. Make us better parents. Cause us to love you um, even more and help to fix our homes as we set our priorities straight. In Jesus' name, amen.